This is Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Hello and welcome to Dialogue Gospel Study for Sunday, November 13th, 2022 with James C. Jones, who will be exploring the story of Daniel and some other scriptures with us today. I'm Rebecca DeSchweinitz, and on behalf of the Dialogue Foundation Board, I'm pleased to be here with you. Fellow board member Chris Kimball is also helping out today. Whether you're a longtime listener or new to Dialogue Gospel Study, we invite you to check out all that Dialogue offers at our website, dialoguejournal.com. There you can find previous Gospel Study lessons, other offerings like Dialogue Out Loud and Dialogue Book Report, as well as links to all the great shows in the Dialogue Podcast Network. You can also find the latest issue of the journal, including our fall 2022 issue, which was just released with amazing cover art, I have to add, by Mackenzie Jones, along with the entire Dialogue archive. That's more than five decades of the journal's scholarship, poetry, essays, sermons, fiction, and art. In the very first issue of Dialogue, founder Eugene England wrote, My faith encourages my curiosity and awe. It thrusts me out into relationship with all creation and encourages me to enter into dialogue. Faith and curiosity and awe continue to guide the work that we do. Find out how you can support that work and secure the future of the oldest independent Mormon studies journal at the donate link at dialoguejournal.com. For those live on Zoom today, as always, you're invited to post respectful and relevant comments and questions in the chat. We'll follow along on Facebook, where we are also running a live stream. Today's teacher is James C. Jones. James is a voice actor, grad student, and co-host with Derek Knox of the podcast Beyond the Block, a show that seeks to center the marginalized in Mormonism, and one of the terrific programs in the Dialogue Podcast Network. James is also the creator of LDS Anti-Racism 101, an online course. After graduating from BYU, he moved to Boston to work as an a cappella performer and toured for six years. Shortly after transitioning into voice overwork, he started graduate school at Union Theological Seminary, where he's currently studying religion and the Black experience and social ethics under philosopher, theologian, and activist Dr. Cordell West. He is also leading the Black Caucus at Union Theological Seminary. His work is featured in many outlets, including Dialogue, the Salt Lake Tribune, KUER, By Common Consent, and more. As with any Latter-day Saint scripture study class, the views expressed today are those of the individual teacher and participants. They do not necessarily reflect those of the Dialogue Foundation, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Brigham Young University, or any other organization. As we begin today, Dialogue would like to acknowledge and honor the passing of Mary Lithgow Bradford. Mary was the third editor of Dialogue from 1978 to 1983 and the first woman in the role. She was a prolific writer and scholar who touched many lives through her work. Earlier this week, her son Stephen Bradford, who is carrying on some of his mother's work as a Dialogue Foundation board member, wrote, Our mother Mary, author, poet, teacher, friend, Feminist and hero died peacefully in her Provo home, free again to uplift, encourage, and use her words to change the paradigm. She has rejoined her beloved husband, Chick, and daughter, Lorraine, in a new arena. We will miss her presence, but glory in the image of her forging ahead, clearing the way for others to follow. We also invite you to read some thoughts on her passing and legacy from others in the Dialogue community at DialogueJournal.com. 
Our opening prayer will be offered by dialogue board member and writer and artist extraordinaire, Linda Hoffman Kimball. We start today with music. Moses Hogan's arrangement of Didn't My Lord Deliver Daniel. Our great and loving God, we are so thankful to be here wherever we are in our various places in our individual lives. And we ask for thy blessing on us that we may attend to James' words, to acknowledge his spirit and his wisdom. We are grateful also for our sister Mary Bradford and pray that you will welcome her with angels. We love her so much. We are grateful to be together on this Sabbath, to have a day of refreshment and renewal where we may consecrate our thoughts to thee and how the Spirit works in our lives. And we say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, thank you, Linda, and thank you, Rebecca, for introducing and uh, you know everybody else who took the time to be here today. Um, for many of us, it was the primary program at our churches. It was the same at my congregation, uh, the uh, primary program, best day of the year. Um, and, um, you know, further just y'all coming to more church after, after church. And, um, you know, I know I got friends out there. I know I got uh, people that um, care very much about making sure that the conversations held around our sacred texts, um, you know, stay being had. And I appreciate those of you who have come hoping to, you know, have some more of those conversations and um, just otherwise understand or at the very least just talk about how else we can liken the scriptures to us. Um, one of the privileges that I get being in school is getting to hear a variety of perspectives on uh, on the sacred text. Just on my way here, I, I got to converse with a member of the Sikh faith about Old Testament scripture, about Hebrew scripture. And, um, you know, they were literally telling me about how to at least one of their Christian friends, um, they are their favorite Christian theologian, in spite of them not being a, a Christian person. Um, it's just a good opportunity for me as well. I'm really grateful to just be able to talk about scripture in general, because I haven't had the opportunity outside of school to do that very often. Um, you know, I come prepared for the come follow me studies each Sunday. Uh, however, just because of the demands of school, the demands of work or the demands of, you know, whatever else, uh, the opportunity for a rich study of these rather long passages of scripture, we don't, we don't get to have that. Um, one of the reasons I took a break from beyond the block for the last uh, couple months was because there's just not enough time to adequately go over these passages of scripture that we are given every single week. Uh, some of you probably have experienced the frustration of going to Sunday school and, um, having to cover two entire books in just an hour's time. It's just not enough to adequately give. Like we, we went over the book of Isaiah in three Sundays and that is just not it. 
I took a class, I took an institute class on a, on Isaiah, and that was not enough. Um, there are whole classes on Isaiah here at the school that I attend, and that's not enough. So, like, it just seems almost kind of cruel that we are given so little time to really crack open uh, some of these scriptures that have so much to share with us, so much to teach us, so much wisdom to offer. And that, aside from the fact that there are so many people who are gaining so many different things from the text, so many different perspectives, so many different experiences. And uh, what I love about being able to go to Sunday school is being able to receive uh, those different perspectives and uh, partake of those different experiences. Uh, Just by way of introduction, the one that I want to uh, share immediately, one reason why I wanted to have that song, Did My Lord Deliver Daniel, arranged by Moses Hogan, one of my favorite choral composers ever. This song came in answer to one of my inquiries that I've had here at school. Um, And, you know, I guess it was actually seated before I even got here. But the question revolved around uh, racial progress and the role of our theology to that end. Um, After the death of Ahmaud Arbery, I earnestly asked the question, is it even worth it trying to integrate the way we've been trying to for the last several decades or for the last 400 years, depending on how you look at it. Is it worth to still pursue integration as the ultimate goal? Um, are there not other things we should be considering? Like, was was Marcus Garvey right? Was Alexander Crummel right? Was Martin Delaney right about separatism? Like, is that the way we should have gone? Was, was Ida B. Wells right? Was Du Bois right? Just at the end of the day, we're just trying to not die. We're trying to thrive. We're trying to survive. Um, Our original goal as uh, Black people when we first got to this country, it wasn't to be able to sit at the table of brotherhood, as Martin Luther King Jr. said, of equality. That wasn't the original goal. The original goal was home. Like you'll notice in a lot of Negro spirituals, home is a motif, is a theme that often appears. Swing low, sweet chariot coming forward to carry me home. I got a home over in Zion. I got a home on the other side, deep river. My home is over Jordan. And not to mention the other Negro folk tales that are about home, like home in those Negro spirituals was not heaven. It wasn't something in the hereafter. Home was a very real place. It was a place of, um, it was a place of reprieve. It was a place where we could live, a place where we could live without fear of death of hostility, where we weren't fugitives on the run, where we didn't feel like fugitives on the run. There's another song also called Home by uh, Stephanie Mills, if you get the uh, opportunity to listen to it. But just the first four lines of that song um, are very poignant as they sum up the definition of home better than I could. Like she says, when I think of home, I think of a place with love overflowing, a place where we don't have to worry a place where our identities, where our existence is not a threat, but it is a given. It is more than a given. And um, that is that is my goal as a Black American, is to feel like I am at home. And at that particular time when I was asking and wrestling with this question after Ahmad Arbery of how we get home, do we build home here, or do we continue striving for home in the society that is so hostile to us? Should we just get out of here? (laughs) Like, is that the uh, way we find home? 
you know, the same way that our ancestors tried to find home, trying to go back. Like that was their goal was going home. And then uh, when I asked this question to a, a womanist theologian who was visiting our campus, um, you know, she sympathized and um, understood where the frustration was coming from. But also she quoted this song, didn't my Lord deliver Daniel? Then why not every man? Why not us? Why not black Americans here that are struggling? Why not the immigrants who are given and are supposed to be given a home anyway, according to our sacred texts. Why not everybody else? Why not every man, as the song says? And then the song goes on to say, he delivered Jonah from the belly of the whale, you know, delivered Daniel from the lion's den. And we can extend that thanks to Mormon theology. He delivered Nephi from Laban, even though, you know, that's a conversation we can have another day uh, based on, you know, we, we've talked about that text in the past, um, but he delivered the people of Limhi. He delivered the people of Alma. He delivered Mosiah. We have four entire Exodus narratives just in the Book of Mormon alone. You know, and we have three in our recent history. So what, what that deliverance looks like exactly, we were not able to get too much into detail. And I think she deliberately left it open-ended as to what that was going to mean in the future. Would deliverance be a, an enhanced integration effort among Americans, or would it actually look like separatism? She, did, she would not go there with me, and, you know, that's fair. I, I can't say I blame her for that. But nonetheless, my faith was strengthened uh, with that answer of this song that my ancestors sang. Didn't my Lord deliver Daniel? Then why not every man? I have faith that because the Lord did deliver Daniel, in spite of those circumstances, and this is all I want to say about Daniel, really, is the fact that Daniel is an example of what covenant living looks like and what it should look like, even in the midst of trial, particularly his own deportation. Potentially, when worship of God is hard, he was not in a land of his own. And what Israel had fallen into so often as a result of exile or as a result of just welcoming in or being among other nations they fell into idolatry. They fell into bad habits. They fell into ways of worship that they claimed were worship, but were actually acts of oppression or idolatry or, you know, just straight up reflections of what it was to not be one with Christ. Um, Daniel, in spite of not being in a land of his own and not in spite of not being home, he still was faithful. He was still faithful to the God of Israel. He still recognized who the power was with and who deliverance was with. And basically the whole book of Daniel is basically showing uh, the fruits of Daniel choosing loyalty to the God of Israel over the gods of Nebuchadnezzar and, you know, the other people that uh, we were not supposed to be loyal to. We're going to get into that a little bit today as we look over Hosea and as we look over Joel and uh, Amos as well. I got about that far in um, my own study of these texts. And uh, some themes are very familiar, like um, this theme of Israel falling into sin and falling into idolatry in particular, which includes uh, worship of other gods, as well as uh, idolatrous practices, and most importantly, and problematically, um, oppression of the poor, of the 
uh, people without homes, of the foreigner, of, um, you know, people who are on the, otherwise on the margins of society. That is not going to be new. But uh, some of the ways that the lessons are going to be taught, some of those are new. And I do want to talk about those uh, just a little bit before we really get into uh, the problem that Israel and Judah occasionally has uh, once we start talking about Amos. So uh, since we're going to be talking about Hosea and uh, Joel for uh, this week's Come Follow Me, I do want to talk about those briefly and uh, what you can more or less expect when we talk about this next Sunday or whenever you know, the next Sunday school is. So Hosea. Now, the book of Hosea fits a pattern of many other prophetic books in the, uh, in the Hebrew Bible. There are several condemnations of Israel's idolatry. Uh, judgment is cast. Repentance is commanded. And uh, the love of, and the love and mercy of, uh, of the Lord are eventually extended, and uh, they sort of balance out the punitive judgment and uh, punishment that, you know, the Lord does dish out. So thematically, at least, the book isn't uh, all that unique, but how the lessons are relayed, uh, again, that's the part that's quite unique, and in my opinion, a little curious, if not, uh, if not questionable, and I'll, and I'll show you what I mean. Um, Hosea, although not all that different thematically, might be the most autobiographical book in, uh, of all the prophetic books in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, the message that is contained in Hosea is partially, but uh, nonetheless significantly, formed around Hosea's own marriage. And uh, this, is the, this is the questionable part that I'm going to get to just a little bit later. Hosea shows a, uh, several cycles that involve, that involve sin, uh, judgment, and uh, restoration. And it's set against the backdrop of Hosea's marriage to, uh, to Gomer, a woman who's repeatedly described as uh, something that's either translated as a uh, sex worker or simply a promiscuous woman engaging in extramarital affairs. Uh, Gomer's faithfulness, it, her, her unfaithfulness rather to Hosea, that's kind of set up as the, uh, as the analog to God's relationship with the unfaithful Israelites. And uh, that whole setup in and of itself is a, a conversation that I don't feel horribly qualified to have, but it is one worth having. Um, but I will say this much about it. There is something kind of, uh, not kind of, there is something tragic about Gomer's silence in the narrative while being remembered primarily as Hosea's unfaithful wife. To, uh, to, be, to, to be immortalized as a uh, significant but Nonetheless, somewhat problematic metaphor of covenantal love that often deifies the male while debasing the female. You know, there's something to be said for that. There is something that needs to be redeemed there. But this is also coming from, you know, my uh, attempting to be conscious mind that is mostly socialized in a westernized context. So I just want to name that as well, which is another reason why I'm not the perfect person to try to comment on this. Uh, that said, there are readings that uh, that redeem Gomer somewhat, and uh, others that queer the narrative by broadening it into a uh, a family narrative, a family story instead of a marriage one, which would make more sense considering that this is ultimately a critique of uh, the community of Israel. It's a community story, not so much a marriage one. And uh, at the very least, uh, such readings allow us to uh, challenge uh, the traditional interpretations that uh, tend to be roost rooted in uh in western sexism and demand 
new ways to think about the uh, the body, uh, ways to think about women, uh, the divine and the sacred. So uh, I'm also deliberately saying less because uh, I'm sure Channing and Elise of the Faithful Feminist podcast will do, they're, they're definitely going to have thoughts on our readings of Hosea and they will most uh, certainly do a better job than I will pro- properly talking about uh, Gomer. And I believe I can teach this lesson, uh, particularly the lesson that Jose is actually trying to teach uh, without a metaphor that I'm not entirely comfortable using because of that socialization. I'm not really comfortable using the archetype of the unfaithful uh, woman to the deified male uh, to say that this is you, Israel. You are you are a problem because you're not faithful like like this woman is. And I, being the great person that I am, the great male that I am, am going to keep taking you back anyway, which is basically the story of Hosea's marriage and the story that um, God is trying to teach the people of Israel through Hosea's marriage. So um, I'm going to focus on that lesson, but I'm not going to uh, focus so much on the marriage story to to relay that lesson, because again, I'm just not all that comfortable with it. So... Without uh, further ado, let's talk a little bit about what we have in Hosea, about how the Lord further sets up this story. In chapter one of Hosea, we have God establishing, you know, the story he's about to tell. He tells Hosea to marry an unfaithful woman so that God can teach Israel a lesson through their marriage. Uh, Then God names the kids that they're going to have or that they do have. Jezreel, a term that means God sows which is symbolic of the judgment that would come upon Israel. The next one he names Lo Ruhama, which means not pitied or no mercy or no compassion, uh, which is basically how God intends to deal with Israel in the next, uh, you know, in the rest of this book. And then the final one he names Lo, uh, Lo Am I, which means not my people. It's a very... I mean, I don't think I really have to describe anything else there except to say that God is really determining or telling these people how he feels about them as he's about to judge them. And by the time we get to uh, chapter four of Hosea, the Lord really begins laying out their case against, uh, against all of Israel. He says there is no truth, no faithful love, and uh, no knowledge of God. And then verse four and six, four through six, sorry, He appears to be especially angry with uh, the priests and the prophet because of their sins. I'm just going to go ahead and read these real quick. Yet let no one contend and let none accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day, and you shall stumble by day. The prophet also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. The Lord is basically telling us here, these leaders should have set the example and taught Israel to love and worship God. But they rejected that knowledge. And all of Israel was destroyed for that lack of knowledge. And this isn't the first time, nor will it be the last time that we see the consequences of faulty leadership, particularly as it relates to neglecting the greater points of the law, like the love spoken of at the beginning of the chapter. Love was likely verbally expressed many times, 
but that same love never really materialized in actions that mattered to the Lord. We saw this uh, just a couple weeks back when we read uh, Jeremiah, whose religious leaders were so corrupt that they wouldn't let him, they wouldn't let him in the temple, nor did the Lord accept any ordinances performed in there because there was no justice performed outside of it. Um, to directly quote Jeremiah, they were oppressing uh, the stranger. They were oppressing the poor and the widow. They were stealing. They were murdering. They were committing adultery. They were swearing falsely, and they were burning incense to Baal. Uh, God also highlighted the, the, the false security they gained from their hypocritical chanting about the temple. Yet they would break all God's commandments while claiming to be delivered to do all of those abominations, which it says in verse 10 of chapter 7. Spiritually, uh, basically, we're dealing with a very sick people, people that can basically discard the entire Decalogue, the entire Ten Commandments, and still believe that they are delivered to commit all these abominations simply because they go to the temple. I could say a lot about the uh, broad application that that might have to our day, uh, this day and age, but I think I've said all that I need to say. Um, I will only say that this is one of my struggles with going to the temple myself. Um, that it's a bit of a catch-22 for me because Jeremiah is a big part of my temple theology where basically God calls the temple or Jeremiah condemns the temple as a den of robbers because of all those things that are going on outside of it. Um, it's very difficult to call the temple a sanctified place, a holy place. Meanwhile, on the outside of the temple, there's all manner of injustice happening, which, again, I highlighted just now. This is like all the murdering, all the swearing falsely, the doctor, the uh, the adultery, the burning incense to false gods, the oppressing of the stranger and the poor and the widow, all that kind of stuff was going on in the days of Jeremiah. All that stuff is still going on in the times of Hosea and in Joel and in Amos when we get to it. And ultimately, this is what leads to God's judgment. But because, at least at that particular time of Jeremiah, people were enjoying the Lord's bounty, people didn't think there was anything wrong with them. And so people did not rush urgently to uh, to fix any of their problematic behaviors, to tend to the needs of uh, of the uh, stranger, of the oppressed, of the widow, of the of the homeless. Um, but again, we'll get into that conversation a little bit more once we uh, finally get to Amos. But anyway, um, this is what we're dealing with, a very sick people. And we see this again in the very beginning of chapter 5, where Hosea directly goes after the source of Israel problem, Israel's problems. And again, it's the leaders. It's the priests and uh, the royal house, their leadership. He calls them a snare and uh, a net trapping people in idolatry. And as a result of that sin, they have led Israel astray. This is not something that we are exempt from. Um, we have, I mean, we've seen it both in ancient days and in these latter days. Uh, leaders have made mistakes, and that doesn't make them any less called to this position of uh, leadership. That just means that we have to be vigilant, extra vigilant. We are not given the luxury of not thinking for ourselves or not verifying as the scriptures actually tell us to do. Um, we are supposed to receive every word that uh, comes from the prophets and comes from our leaders from God as if they're from God, but we are also supposed to verify that those words are from God. That is what we have in Doctrine and Covenants section 68.4. Whatever that is uh, said when moved upon by the Holy Ghost, that is what is from God. And we only know what is moved, what is, 
We only know when the leaders are being moved upon by the Holy Ghost as we regularly try out Moroni's promise. We have to pray, we have to seek personal revelation, and we have to, of course, read our scriptures and do all those other Sunday school answers. We have to verify. Like, that's part of the process. And um, whether you're Daniel, who is clearly among people who do not worship the same God that we do, or you're the people of Hosea, who are clearly still the children of Israel, but are com- but are doing all manner of abomination in the name of the God we worship. We see that several times as well throughout the uh, throughout the Hebrew scriptures. We saw it very early in the uh, Exodus narrative um, when Aaron oversaw the uh, building of the golden calf. As soon as they were done building the golden calf and they started worshiping it, Aaron highlighted that golden calf as the God that led them out of Egypt. Like we can very much fall into these same traps. We can engage in all manner of problematic worship or problematic practices and then do them in the name of the God that led the children of Israel out of Egypt. And in reality, we're actually worshiping false gods. We could be discarding the entirety of the Ten Commandments or the entirety of the First and Second Great Commandment and still say that we are worshiping God. And we got to be very careful to not fall into that particular snare. Again, we'll get into that some more once we get to Amos, which is uh, what I really want to get to today. But before we do that, uh, we'll go ahead and talk about Joel a little bit. Uh, just by way of introduction to this particular book, there are a lot of people named Joel in the Hebrew Bible, and uh, none of the Joels that we've really come across so far can be identified with uh, the author of the book of Joel. Um, we don't know anything about this guy other than his father's name. It says in verse one, Joel, the son of Pethuel. And that's all we know about his genealogy. We We can't date the book of Joel either. He doesn't introduce this book by mentioning who the king was in Judah or in Israel, which is something that a lot of the other prophets do. And he doesn't indicate the particular sins of the people either. So there's no particular behaviors named. There's no leaders named, uh, no behaviors that need to be changed that are named. So we just don't know. His primary concern, though, is the proclaiming of something that will he'll repeat throughout the book, which is the day of the Lord. I think the first time that appears is in chapter 1, verse 15. And you'll see this phrase, day of the Lord, come over and over again uh, throughout the scriptures or throughout the uh, book of Joel. But anyway, Joel speaks to his people about their desperate need for restoration. And he starts off his book by saying something along the lines of, these are unprecedented times. And I want you all to think about how often we say that today. I just saw a tweet on the internet the other day that said something along the lines of shout out to everybody that remembers when we had precedented times, but it just seems like every time we turn on the news, people are saying these are unprecedented times. And uh, we hear that a lot today, but Joel is in essence, or sorry. Yeah. Joel is in essence saying that to the people he's talking to Um, in the midst of these unprecedented times, Joel is telling the people that we have to cease all normal activity and uh, call a solemn assembly that they might be able to get right before God so that God might remove uh, the locusts that have pretty much stripped the land of all their crops, a sign of God's judgment. So I just want to point out what Joel told his people to do in the midst of these unprecedented times. We have to deviate from business as usual, like it's no longer business as usual. We have to do something different now. Uh, Unprecedented times call for unprecedented and desperate measures. And that's what these are. These are unprecedented and desperate times. So Joel, one of the first things he does is suggest a move into something that is different. And um, something that I do appreciate about what is occasionally said in our talks in general conference, even though it's more or less the same thing, 
And not that there isn't something to be said for uh, repetition. There is also something to be said for the fact that this is a different time. We live in a different context and we can't get by on the same messages all the time. Um, we do need to do something, some things different now. And we do see uh, the brethren trying to move in a different direction on occasion. Uh, like this last general conference, we have moved into a uh, different for the strength of youth pamphlet. Like it's not as particular or as specific or as dogmatic as the previous one was. And we can certainly look to that as a, a positive change, even though there is a conversation to be had about how we more or less restore the damage that we did to uh, people of my generation and uh, before. So um, while we should have those conversations, we do also have to acknowledge that in these unprecedented times, we can take these little victories in uh, these new measures that we are taking. We should be doing things slightly, if not significantly, different. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what else is done different. I don't know if we'll move so far as to have a uh, solemn assembly like Joel had, but uh, I do feel like we are moving toward that direction. But uh, to bring it back to Joel, things are so bad at this point where uh, Joel compares the pestilence that they are experiencing to, uh, to an invading nation. Uh, the first chapter states that grief comes upon both uh, the priests and the farmers. Farmers, because of the obvious economic devastation uh, that they're experiencing, and uh, priests, because not only were people not offering sacrifices or making offerings, period, but uh, because they couldn't receive grain or drink offerings, that means that uh, the priests didn't eat either. But if the people would repent, then uh, God would not only remove the locusts, but he would also restore that which had been lost uh, to the locusts, which I think is a big deal when it comes to reparative justice. I think we should take a uh, cue from that uh, when it comes to how we desire to repair uh, the damages that certain things used to cause. Like for the strength of youth pamphlet, there's only so much that we can do, but we can at least make an effort to restore um, you know, what may have been lost uh, for the generations that had to grow up with some of the more dogmatic things in that pamphlet. And if we do, by the grace of God, ever uh, apologize for the priesthood and temple restrictions that were placed on people of African descent, I do hope that we engage in something that is more than a cosmetic effort to, um, to make right what was made wrong by those 126-year-long dispossessions, both spiritual and social, of uh, people of African descent. Uh, I don't know entirely what that's going to look like, but I do think it does look like an earnest and a hard and protracted effort to, um, to acknowledge and correct racism in our pews and also outside of them too. Um, not to say that the things we've been doing uh, aren't significant or that they don't matter, but I do want to say that they are not enough. And I hope that when uh, that day comes that we do en engage in something that is more restorative and uh, less cosmetic. Um, but anyway, by the time, basically by the time Joel is done talking about the pestilence, he declares that if the people would repent, that God would not only remove those locusts, but restore that which had been lost. So overall, God will judge and he demands repentance. But when we do, rep when we do repent, uh, God can restore what rebellion has destroyed, and he can turn curses into blessings. That is one of the primary messages of Joel. And when we get to chapter two, Joel warns of the coming day of the Lord, and we'll see that phrase repeated throughout the text. 
a terrible and dreadful day with the looming anger of God. Uh, things basically are not going to end well for, his, for, uh, for uh, God's people. But after about 10 or 11 verses of doom and gloom, Joel suddenly pivots to a message of hope, highlighting the mercy and the love of a God who is slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, relents from sending disaster, and is the only source of true blessing to the people of Israel. And sure enough, that's actually how the story ends. Uh, the people do turn, they do repent, and they are saved, and they are spared. So there is hope to be had even in the midst of these doom and gloom cursings that the Lord is dropping upon their people. So there is always a message of hope in the midst of all that. I would go so far as to say is there's not quite such a thing as too little too late, but um, we've seen other times and in other texts where too little is too late. We see that in the Book of Mormon. We see that with uh, the people of Israel um, when they first come out of Egypt. Uh, we see that with the people of Noah. So the message, <laughs> it doesn't apply all the time, but uh, sometimes it does. And, you know, I, I suppose there is uh, hope to be taken in that. So that's all I really want to say about Joel. Um, and now we get into the uh, really good stuff, which is in the book of Amos. Now, let me get my notes for Amos up real quick. So one thing I like about Amos was that Amos was not even a prophet by vocation. Amos was a, uh, he was a sheep reader. And God basically took him from the flock and commanded him to prophesy to Israel. Thus, he ministered to the northern kingdom, even though he was, um, he himself was from Judah. Um, and this is during a time where we are in the reign of King Uzziah and uh, Jeroboam II. This was a time of great prosperity and military success for both Israel and both and, and Judah. Uh, Samaria, the capital city of Israel, um, was blessed with all this uh, wealth and luxury. And they had it for a while, but this was accompanied by idolatry and a lot of moral decline. And as a result, Amos was called to cry out against uh, Samaria's wickedness and their self-indulgence. And that's basically what we have throughout the entire book. Um, those leaders experienced prosperity, the poor, they were exploited. And it was against this nation that was bereft of uh, righteousness and full of corruption and idolatry that Amos was sent to prophesy. And uh, one of my favorite sentences which is also uh, quoted in Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, occurs in this, uh, in this chapter, where he demands that justice flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. It is quoted all the time in justice context, and it's probably most famously quoted in um, Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. So uh, the whole prophecy of Amos was delivered to these people who had experienced uh, you know, prosperity blessings, wealth blessings, and uh, other kinds of successes. But God did have a message for them, which is that prosperity does not necessarily imply God's blessing, particularly when it's uh, mixed with rebellion against God, when it's mixed with idolatry. Uh, Amos's readers were actually living under God's displeasure because they enjoyed the benefits of prosperity while uh, while ignoring the disenfranchised among them, while being unjust to uh, those who didn't enjoy the same economic and uh, social status and blessings. 
and what I liked most about Amos was that he was very direct in uh, telling the people that they could en- that they could not enjoy the blessing of uh, the blessings of the Lord without living uh, without living uh, lives that the Lord Himself ordained. God expects their people to be a blessing, and uh, we should not simply use these blessings for self-indulgence. The, the people needed to, um, to learn that living under God's kingdom rule was to be done in an obedient and generous way. Um, and, you know, Amos also prophesies about the day when the restored remnant of Israel would be the means through whom God would bring blessing to all the people. And uh, Amos shows God how God uses those living under God's rule to accomplish uh, the promises of uh, the promises of their blessings. So let's just, you know, go ahead and get into it. The book of Amos. Um, pretty much the whole of chapter one through the beginning of two is just God condemning people. It's just Amos naming all these different cities, all these different lands, their particular sins, and that they will be punished for them. That's basically what we get in a chapter, all of chapter one. Uh, God condemning uh, murder, condemning idolatry, uh, most notably in six through eight, God condemning the kidnapping and selling of humans into slavery, because that's what the Edomites did. Um, and, you know, promised cursings, like we get that pretty much all through chapter one and the beginning of two. And then we get to the beginning of two, which begins with a cursing and a naming of the sins of the Moabites. But then we're about to get to Israel. So in response to uh, Amos's condemnation uh, to the nations around them, you know, God's people probably were feeling pretty good about themselves. They'll probably be like, yeah, they deserve it. They deserve all those cursings. Bring it on. Like, that's probably how they're feeling about themselves. But then Amos turns himself and all of, his, all of his prophetic arsenal is directly towards Israel. And he spends more time condemning them than anybody else, anybody that he's previously condemned. Because they have, instru- they have rejected the instruction of the Lord and have not kept the Lord's statutes. And because of that, God's fire will be unleashed on Judah too. God does not show partiality. God is no respecter of persons. We read that a bunch. And Israel, we've seen them do this multiple times where they think they're like immune from cursings or they're immune from being taken over simply because they're the Lord's people. But Amos is about to dig into them. They're like, just because of your position of privilege, that doesn't mean you're safe. And he demonstrates that by basically saying that where much is given, much is required. And subsequently, they give a much longer list and a much longer read uh, because they knew better and they still performed the way that they performed. So because Israel wanted to act like those who don't know God, they would be treated like those who don't know God. Amos' prophecy against Israel, it begins, it's longer than any that came before. And if anyone should have known better than to do the kinds of things that these other nations uh, in uh, chapters one in the beginning of two were doing, it should have been Israel. Like they were the ones who received God's holy word. But Israel was also selling people into slavery, just as the surrounding nations had done. Uh, the poor and the needy, they were being trampled and uh, sexual immorality that infected homes. They had forgotten what God did for them when they uh, when they were slaves in Egypt is what it says in verse 10 of chapter two. There was no gratitude. 
to uh, the God who had led them out of Egypt. There was no gratitude towards the uh, God who redeemed them and had forgiven them. Therefore, God says, basically, let me just read this, because I think it's pretty short. I think it's pretty blunt. This is uh, chapter 2, verse 13 of Amos. I'm reading the NRSV in case uh, anybody's confused about the translation. But this is 2, verse 13. So I will press you down in your place, just as a cart presses down when it is full of sheaves. So basically, the Lord says, I'm going to crush you. The strong, the swift, and the courageous will not be strong, swift, or courageous enough when the wrath of God comes to town. Like, that's basically the message that Amos, that Amos is giving these people. So now we get further messages of uh, judgment in chapter 3. And by the time we get to uh, chapter 4, Amos has even more words for the wealthy, for the uh, indulgent, And, you know, some of this language he uses is a little bit strong. Like he begins Amos chapter four, verse one, by calling the women cows, like a little harsh, little, little misogynistic. But, you know, we're going to roll with it. Basically, what he's trying to say is the wealthy, indulgent women of Samaria. He begins, listen to this message, you cows of Bashan or you kind, if you're reading the King James Version. Um, This place had flourishing pastures, plump livestock like spoiled cows. Um, That's what he's alluding to. He's saying that these people are spoiled. They demanded luxury and pleasure, but at the same time, they oppressed the poor and the needy, and they made demands, harsh demands on their husbands. What a contrast to the uh, wife of noble character that is brought up in the book of Proverbs 31. She feared the Lord, served her family, and ministered to the poor, as it says in Proverbs chapter 31, verses 10 through 31. And then he goes on to say that these women of Samaria who snubbed God and committed social injustice against his people, they would eventually suffer uh, humiliation and be carried into exile into foreign lands. The Lord swears by his holiness that he would bring this about, and there's no better guarantee than that. And then Amos starts getting a little mouthy. He starts getting a little sarcastic. Let me just read to you what's in uh, chapter 4, verses uh, 4 through 5 in particular. And I'm going to try to read this with the tone that uh, he's reading this in. He says, come to Bethel and transgress to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Bring a thank offering of leavened bread and proclaim freewill offerings, publish them. For so you love to do, O people of Israel, says the Lord God. So Amos is getting a little sarcastic at this part. Like he's saying that that's what you guys love to do. Y'all love to like bring your offerings. Y'all love to offer your like holy oblations in the temples. But like, all meanwhile, all this injustice is happening around them. Like when the nation split into the northern and southern kingdoms, uh, King Jeroboam of Israel built an altar at Bethel, and he made uh, two golden calves for the people to worship in order to prevent them from going to Judah and the temple there. Um, this was in direct violation of the Mosaic law. So Amos sarcastically encourages them to continue the idolatry they love so that they can see where devotion to these golden calves and these other false gods ends. He's, in, he's like willfully encouraging that. And this wasn't even the first time that, uh, that uh, God responded to Israel's idolatry. We see previous acts of, um, of a cursing, pre- previous acts of discipline. We see 
food shortages, like we saw in uh, the book of Joel. We see withered crops, uh, locusts, other plagues. We see death and we see destroyed cities. Like that's basically what uh, the Lord was saying they were going to do all throughout chapter one and at the beginning of two was all these cities, all these lands were going to be destroyed. But in spite of all this, God declared repeatedly that their response was the same. You did not return to me. This is four, six. This is four, eight. This is nine, 10, 11. You did not return to me is basically what he, what the Lord is saying. Israel had been given chance after chance to repent. But at this point, based on uh, Amos's language and based on the directness, the gloves seem to be coming off. By the time we get to four, verse 12, he's saying, therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For lo, the one who forms the mountains, creates the wind, reveals his thoughts to mortals, makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. The Lord, uh, the God of hosts is his name. So then by the time we get to chapter five, there is a a great lament um, for the people of Israel because Israel has fallen. No one will raise her up is how five opens up. And then a very poignant and almost, uh, the question feels like a dagger, but um, let, let me just read this to you. Turning to worthless idols, uh, idols at Bethel and uh, other sacrificial locations in Israel would come to nothing. So what could the people do instead? And by the time we get to 5-6, the answer is seek the Lord and live, or he will break out against the house of Joseph like fire, and it will devour Bethel with no one to quench it. So it's, uh, it's very similar to what we read in um, Matthew chapter 6, uh, which is seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Like that's the closest thing I can think of to these verses is seek the Lord and live. And uh, based on what Amos continues to write, we can safely assume that seeking God and God's kingdom is not a one day a week activity. It's a daily attempt to adopt God's perspective on life as revealed in God's word. And it includes living out that perspective. But this is exactly what Israel refused to do. Um, they hated the one that convicts the guilty and despise the one who speaks with integrity. Their social injustices against the poor, they were innumerable. And then God's promise was plain for all who would hear. Um, This is 14 now. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts will be with you, just as you have said, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord. In all the squares, there shall be wailing, and in all the streets, they shall say, say, alas, alas. They shall call the farmers to mourning and those skilled in lamentation to wailing. In all the vineyards, there shall be wailing, for I will pass through the midst of you, says the Lord. And then proceeds with several woes of judgment through the rest of the chapter. And uh, then we get to the end of of chapter five, where uh, God states that he hates the religious practices of Israel and refuses to accept them. This is verses 21 through 23. And then it states why, that uh, why the Lord refused to accept those things. This is verses 24. Let just, he says, take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness 
like an ever-flowing stream. This is the part of the Bible that Martin Luther King uh, quoted in the I Have a Dream speech. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings the 40 years in the wilderness? You shall take up Sakath and your king and Kaiwan, your star god, your images, which you made for yourselves. So, um, yeah. Let, oh, gosh. I'm just now seeing the time. I'm so sorry. I'm going to wrap this up real quick. But uh, this is basically woes. And then we get, by the time we get to six, it's more woes. We get to visions of judgment uh, by the time we get to chapter seven. And uh, then we get to the beautiful promises of restoration in uh, chapter nine, which basically tell us that in spite of the judgment, God will not forget their people. In that day, he will restore the fallen shelter of David. This is nine verse 11, a reference to the uh, uh, monarchy of David. And then in the future kingdom, Jesus Christ will sit on David's throne. The days are coming when God's rich blessings will be upon Israel. And then the Lord declares that I will plant them on their land and they will never again be uprooted from the land I have given them. And this tells us that in the millennial kingdom, God will restore Israel to their land, never to be removed again. So there is a promise of hope at the end of this in spite of this judgment. And then finishes it off by declaring the Lord God has spoken. So in all of this, there is a constant theme of idolatry, of uh, God's people turning away from God. And basically the recurring theme is that when that turning away from God happens, there's also injustice in the land. There are people being neglected. And this is probably the thing that is most upsetting to God. The real sin, by the way, of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is outlined in Ezekiel, was not really anything relating to uh to uh, people being gay or people engaging in gay sex. It was all about inhospitality, particularly to uh, foreigners. Um, And we see the same thing that Amos is condemning. There is inhospitality. There is a lack of love. There is a lack of justice being meted among the people. Like this is the thing that God is most frustrated with because this is basically the entirety of the law is to mete out justice. The most commonly uh, repeated Uh, concepts in all of the Hebrew Bible, at least so far in my own study of it, are that are the words uh, mishpat and tzedakah, which translate as righteousness and justice. Those are the most commonly repeated themes throughout the entirety of the Hebrew Bible, justice and righteousness. It would stand to reason that a big part of the Hebrew Bible then is all about making sure justice is dealt. And we have several accounts of uh, whether it be through the stories of the Exodus or the establishing of the law, where justice is to be done. We see it with the uh, law of the Sabbath, uh, the year of Jubilee, uh, what the Israelites are supposed to do every seventh year. Justice is supposed to be meted. Debts aren't supposed to be forgiven. And when strangers come through, we're supposed to welcome them with open arms and make sure they have what they need. Um, And this is all done on a communal level. So basically every time the people turn away from the Lord, there is a question of uh, the justice that is being done in the land. Most of the time when idolatry is being committed, it is almost always hand in hand with the sin of injustice, with the sin of uh, not welcoming the foreigner, with the sin of oppressing the poor, with the sin of murdering, the the sin of, uh, you know, not welcoming in the stranger or not tending to the widow or not tending to the poor. It's always hand in hand, this sin of idolatry and these injustices. And we would do well as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to be mindful of how we tend to justice in our own pews and also in the world around us. Because chances are 
that if justice is not a priority to us, we are probably not living up to our covenants. We are probably engaging in the same idolatry that the Israelites, the supposed chosen people of God, were also engaging in. And what made their idolatry so hard to see for them was the fact that they were God's chosen people. They were committing these injustices, but they were also going up to the temples. They were committing these injustices, but they were also making offerings. Can we not fall into those same traps? My prayer is that we are vigilant, that we watch ourselves, we watch our neighbors, and we tend to ourselves, and we tend to each other. Because how we treat our neighbors is probably, if not most definitely, the biggest indicator of how well we are living into our calling, into our birthright as God's chosen people. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Um, Thank you, James. (laughs) It's a powerful uh, lesson. And um, we won't be meeting again as a dialogue family for a few weeks, but I'm going to be coming back to this lesson, I think, every Sunday until then (laughs) to um, chew on it a little bit more. Uh, We'll go ahead and close uh, with a prayer, which will be offered by Eric Gould, who's one of our participants today um, from St. George, where he's a reporter and someone who believes in the mission and vision of dialogue. Uh, Then we hope to have a little bit of a conversation um, as we grapple a little bit um, more with James's message and and how we can um, seek the Lord and live in the way that God intends us to. Can you hear me okay? Our dear Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for this lesson and this opportunity to hear from James Jones. Please bless him and watch over him as he continues on the covenant path. Father, we're grateful for dialogue and the ability to have meaningful discussion about your word. And Father, please bless us as church members that we might be open to all views and perspectives about following our Lord Jesus Christ. And in his name, we say amen. Amen. You've been listening to the Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Find more of our podcasts at dialoguejournal.com slash podcasts. Dialogue Podcast Network.